Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 388. This program is dedicated by Janine Lombroso in honor of her children and grandchildren. We have entered now the ninth year of this program, My Life Chassidus Applied. Nine years. It's hard for me to believe that uh, it would be so successful in the sense of listenership as well as the thousands and thousands of questions that keep pouring in on every topic. I'm fascinated and touched and humbled by this opportunity. And just to be able to be right there at the pulse of our times where people communicate and express their concerns, their personal struggles, their difficulties, their challenges, and to be able to try to use the Torah, applying it to answer these questions. So it's important to acknowledge, and I'm acknowledging and thanking you and everyone listening. And uh, this would not be possible because this is a very interactive platform. It would not be possible without your questions, without your comments. We have an entire website called chsidisapply.com as an outgrowth of this, where you can see and view all the previous 387 episodes of the last eight years as well as submit any question in the, in the anonymous forum at chassidahsupply.com. You can also find there the essays over the years, the essay contest, the creative contests, as well as other materials in uh, applying chassidahs courses and classes on uh, different chassidic discourses, including Samach Vav and Ayim Beis, which I teach now on a daily basis, and you're welcome to participate every morning, 9.30 a.m., Sundays, 10 a.m., Eastern Time. Just check out all the links are there at chassidusapplied.com. Also, uh, the past year began Tanya Applied, which is another outgrowth of this, a weekly Metzoy Shabbos Saturday night program, half hour, going in order of the beginning of Tanya, the classic Tanya, the written Torah of Chassidus, and we're up to the middle of chapter five, and you're welcome to participate in that as well. That's a little housekeeping, some announcements. And of course, this is a program that is supported by your contributions and your generosity. So I always welcome and encourage you to help us dedicate a program in honor of a loved one or memory of a loved one or anyone you see fit. And you can do that easily by going to chassidahsupply.com and there there's donate or sponsorships that you can easily um, access. Okay, well... As I said, the questions keep pouring in, especially about the recent issues about uh, sexual abuse. And I've been covering it two weeks ago. I did a special two-hour program on that. Last week I did some follow-up. I'll do some more follow-up. But of course, there are other matters as well um, and uh, that cover the different spectrum, including just yesterday's hostage crisis in Texas, in the synagogue in Texas, which I will speak about as well. And of course, we'll begin with the timely matters that tonight is Tu Bishvat, Chamisha Osir Bishvat. I believe the Rebbe never used the word Tu Bishvat. Tu is Tezvav, is the 15th, or Tu Ba'ov, but rather Chamisha Osir, the 15th day of Shvat, which the Mishnah designates as Rosh Hashanah Le'ilonis. It's a new year of trees. Our original Arbor Day. So we'll begin with that. We'll talk about the lessons from Pastor Yisrael some follow-up on Yud and some of the current events and lessons that we can learn from, from the events happening these days 
And uh, of course, all driven by your questions and your feedback and your thoughts. So to begin with Tu Bishvat, Chamisha Asa Bishvat, I should say, what should we learn from this day? You can make the argument, okay, trees, plants, fine, they have their own new year, just as we, the humans, have a new year called Rosh Hashanah, and the first day of Tishrei, the sixth day of creation. Trees begin their cycle, annual cycle, on the 15th of Shvat, according to Hillel, and that's the halacha, the law is ruled that way, though Shammai, Shammai's opinion that it begins Rosh Chodesh Shvat, two weeks earlier. And the difference is in how, you, how they gauge what is the, considered the beginning of the new season of trees. But you can argue, what relevance does it have to us? So first of all, everything has relevance to the human being, being that we are placed in this world to elevate and refine and transform existence. And that includes all the different kingdoms, the mineral, the vegetable, including trees and plants and so on, the animal kingdom, and of course the human kingdom, the human domain. So that's in general. And we see that in the very context of how the Torah describes how we make blessings on food, how we are dependent on food. And much food comes from the vegetable kingdom. So that alone tells us that we need to interact with it, we're dependent on it, and as the Arizal says, he asked the question, why, which is cited in the Hasidus, why? Why is a, a human being a more superior, a, a superior uh, species dependent on a lower species, animal or vegetable? And the answer is because there are sparks there that are even higher than we have, than the humans have. So those sparks sustain us. We in turn elevate that world. But more specifically, there's a verse that is applied in this way, though the actual meaning of the verse can mean something else, but it also has the meaning that we find that a human being is compared to the tree in the field, which, interest, which brings up a very intriguing concept, and that is the concept of microcosm. That though there's doimim tzemei those are the Hebrew words for mineral, vegetable, animal and man, and human being, they're also, they encompass each other. In other words, in each one of them, there's all four. So the human being encompasses both the mineral, for example, our bones, our teeth. You have the vegetable, we have things that grow within us. You can say like the hair, the nails. And you have the animal, of course, within us, and of course the human. So the concept is that we have something similar to trees, and we can learn from them. And there are many lessons that can be learned. The first, of course, most obvious lesson is growth, the mere fact that we have to constantly grow. A tree teaches us the idea of being of blossoming. When Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, the first thing we hear about are the trees, the two trees especially, but there were all types of trees. The tree of life, the tree of knowledge, this one you shall eat from, this one you shall not. So in many discourses, Chassidus explains because the tree is reflective of our emotional growth and we need to constantly mature in our emotions, in refining them, in elevating them from their subjective self-interest to focus on things that have higher value, to turn our trees into transcendent entities. So these are the general lessons that we learn. So when it comes to Rosh Hashanah Lilanis, it was actually the custom to eat of a fruit we haven't eaten in the past year and make a shechiyonu which is a blessing on something we haven't done for a while. 
in the Sephardic tradition, there's actually a chamishas above Seder. They do like a Seder, like a similar to a Passover Seder, not with a, quite the same level of intensity, but a very, a very elaborate process where they say different prayers, different fruits, and make it into a fabrengan, into a gathering. And there are various other customs on this uh, special day that, that for us humans, because there are things to be learned from trees. A tree is the only thing that grows in two directions, up and down, the roots. And the interesting thing, it's interdependent. The deeper the roots, the greater the fruits. Which means that a tree, for it to really be sustainable, needs to have very deep roots in our lives as well. It's not just enough to grow, but it's also important to be grounded, to have deep roots, to stand on the shoulders of giants, to hold on to those that came before us. And that, in turn, doesn't just keep us grounded, it allows us to actually grow. The more nurtured we are, the more solid grounding we have, the greater we can expand, the more we can spread our wings. A bird that has a nest, has the comfort, has the security, that the day comes that it leaves the nest, it can really grow and expand. And in this case, we need to always have both dimensions. And there are many, many other lessons, but specifically when we talk about chassidah applied, applying it to our personal lives, to really bring it, bring it home, think of it this way, that on a day like the 15th of Shvat, is a good day to make the resolution, ask yourself every day, are you like a tree that's growing? Are, you, are your branches growing out? Are you reaching others? Are you sheltering people by the leaves that press a shade and give people comfort? Are you bearing fruit? When we talk about fruit-bearing trees, meaning having a perpetual effect on someone, that when you teach someone, it bears fruit, and that person in turn becomes a teacher of others. So these are excellent questions that we should ask ourselves on this 15th of Shvat. The tree within us, how is it doing? How's that growth element? And especially in the area of our emotional growth. Emotions, as, we, as I mentioned, are subjective. But we grow emotionally, and we have the ability to get beyond our subjectivity. Subjectivity would dictate, just take care of your own needs, me, myself, and no one else. Aniva Avsiyeh, me and no one else. But when you think about it, and you contemplate on it, you come to learn the idea of love. to love another and to continuously grow in that area. And how do we do that? Through our cognitive faculties, where we concentrate and we focus, and we just don't follow just our whims and our impulses. So that's also part of the 15th of Shvat, you can say meditation or exercises. And many more things that we can learn from this day, which, I think I planted some of the seeds, no pun intended, and hopefully you can take it further, each of us in our own particular way. Another question I came in regarding that. Tu B'Shvat, or Chemisha B'Shvat, is the high holiday, high holy days of trees and plants. My wife says we shouldn't water our plants in case, like it's Yom Kippur, for trees and they're supposed to be fasting. But I feel we should water our plants extra in case it's like Rosh Hashanah, they should have a nice suda, nice meal. We understand it's an important day for trees, but what are the practical lessons for us on the 15th of Shvat? So the last question I have answered. An interesting debate. May it be, <laughs> this be the only disagreement that spouses have? Well, first of all, it's compared to Rosh Hashanah. Even though it's true, Yom Kippur sometimes is called Rosh Hashanah, but 
Rosh Hashanah, so I would vote that it's the Rosh Hashanah, not the Yom Kippur of the trees. The context of fasting, regardless, trees are not supposed to fast. I mean, yes, there are times that they, uh, I'm sure they go into the winter uh, hibernation, but trees are, to be sustained need to constantly have moisture. So I would not suggest that a way to honor trees is to, sub- to deprive them of their uh, nourishment. Um, so the way to honor trees is to respect them, to not cut down a tree when not necessary, as the verse states, to um, learn from them, understand their value, understand what they teach us. The idea of growth, as I said, the idea of bearing fruit, the tree of life, connecting ourselves to Eitzachayim, to a tree of life that's grounded in the roots as well as, as I said, soaring and spreading its wings. So that's the way we honor it. And the lessons I already mentioned. So we go now to lessons from Pashas Yisrael. So Yisrael, of course, is... Uh, so we are talking about Shmoiz Vareda Boy Bishalachisei, the fifth chapter of the book of Exodus, which contains the story, the narrative of the biggest event in history, the story of Sinai. That after 49 days, following their exodus from Egypt, the Jewish people now arrive at Sinai. And uh, actually, it's not 49 days when they arrive, they arrive six days earlier. They write Sivan, the first day of Sivan, but then 49 days later, on the 50th day, is the day when they receive the Torah. The mandate from God, the blueprint for existence, the blueprint for life, which in turn brought civilization to this world, not just to the Jewish people, to the entire world, and impacts literally every part of our society. So, the first and most obvious lesson is how far are we from Sinai? Are we aligned with the mandate, with the blueprint that was given to us? It seems like a very obvious question, but especially in a week like this, that's the first question we should be asking. The Torah is like life's operator's manual. You buy a computer, you buy a new new smartphone, you buy any appliance, it comes with an operator's manual. It tells you how to use it. How to use it at its best to make sure that the machine works properly. What to avoid that shouldn't cause damage. The same is true with life itself. We are too a machine, an appliance. Not a machine, I mean it in an insensitive way. I mean we're an organism. And there's, uh, what, there's to do's and don'ts of what makes this organism thrive. And that's the Torah. It's a CAT scan of God's mind and God's will telling us how best to use the machine called life that each of us was blessed with. And there are things you do to make it grow and blossom and thrive and flourish. And there are things that cause, that can impede that growth and that could even cause damage, God forbid, and injury. So just as you go to a doctor and a doctor takes an x-ray or other scans to understand what's going on, what makes us tick, so too the Torah gives us that scan and that x-ray of our souls. And every detail in the Torah, every narrative, every personality, every character, and definitely every mitzvah, is meant to teach us. Torah from the word hera, directive, an operator's man, to teach us how best to live our lives, to actualize, to fulfill our great potential, and to fulfill our calling, our divine calling of why are you here? So this should be, every day we should be renewing and revisiting that question 
but especially in this week when we read the chapter of Yisrael. That's a general overview. As far as some more specifics, so here's some questions that came in. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, How do we reconcile the Yidden, the Jews, saying Nasev Nishma, which means we shall do and then we shall hear or we shall understand. But when the time came to actually receive the Torah, they were frightened of God's voice to the point that it says in some places they ran five miles away from Mount Sinai. Well, there are different opinions exactly on that, Chazal, but the point being they were frightened. When a, of another question in the same vein, when God said the Ten Commandments, it was amidst thunder and lightning and billows of smoke. And the Jewish people were very frightened and begged Moshe, Moses to say the Ten Commandments instead of God. But we have seen before, when God wanted to communicate something with people, he was able to do it in a more calm, peaceful, and non-frightening manner. Such as the time when he communicated to Moses in such a peaceful, calm way that the fire didn't get out of control and consumed the bush. So why did God have to go into full aggressive mode, a person writes beast mode, I don't think that's an appropriate word, at Mount Sinai and communicate in such a forceful and frightening way when our kalim, our containers, were not able to handle it and had to ask Moshe to intervene? Okay. Very good question. But here's the key point to remember. And this takes us into the deeper soul, the deeper event what actually happened at Sinai. Sinai was the mandate that God gave. Beautiful. But it was more than just that. It was giving the people the power to transform this very material world into a spiritual and divine environment. And that's not a simple task. Because you can make the argument that the matter and spirit, matter and energy, are two different worlds. And indeed, the, the Medrash says that before Sinai, there was a a decree, and it could also mean a schism between heaven and earth, between spirit and matter. In the words of the Medrash, it says that that which was above did not come down below, and that which was below did not go up above. So the patriarchs and the matriarchs, their primary work was spiritual in this material world, but the power to transform matter into energy, E equals MC squared, the original E equals MC squared, was given at Sinai. And that's not a small matter because it had to introduce a third dimension that's, that's beyond matter and spirit. So that's why it makes total sense that when that revelation took place, it shook the very foundations of existence, of the world, of this earth. Because it was infusing new power that until then remained either removed or con completely concealed and inaccessible. Now, at the end of the day, it was actually Mount Torah that brought calm to the universe. The Talmud says, on the verse, Eretz Yara there's a verse that says that the earth trembled and then was silenced, was calmed. Was it trembling or was it calm? And it answers that when God created the universe, it was on the condition that the universe would be aligned with God's plan by following the Torah, the operator's manual. There were reasons it wasn't given immediately at the time. People had to get 
educate themselves, prepare themselves to, to be able to receive the Torah, first show their initiative. Many different explanations why it took 26 generations. But the condition was there. So when they were standing by, by Sinai, the whole earth was shuddering. Will the people receive the Torah and, felt, and live up to the condition of its existence? Because if not, the earth would have no reason to be. It would cease to be. And when the Torah was received, the world came to calm, serenity, settled, shakata, silenced. Because the world was recognized that the world is going to live up to its purpose. That the Jewish people, through the Torah, and spreading to the entire world, will bring the world to fulfill, be aligned with its creator. With the mission for which it was created. So in truth, was really a deeper peace that was achieved. But to do so, you could imagine, it had to first shatter the resistance. And that's why the Talmud says that the whole world felt Sinai happening. They came running to Bilam, the prophet, and they said, what's going on? They saw the world that says that when the Torah was given at Sinai, the birds were not chirping. Everything in existence went into a very silent state. And they asked him, what is happening? And Bilam said, Hashem oiz la'amayitin, Hashem yivorech vashalom. God is giving his strength, his power to his nation, to his people. And he's blessing them with peace. So he gets strength and peace. The strength to transform this world. So there's that initial shudder. And then bringing peace and calm to the universe. The final purpose. So whenever you see, for example, you light a fire. You see the initial moments it starts crackling because the fuel, the wood, or the other things that are fueling the fire have to get acclimated to begin burning the fire. But then after a while, it burns very quietly. The initial resistance is always one that creates a certain frightening state. Another way to put it is that the energy of Sinai was so powerful that, yes, it overwhelmed the people, and that was intentional. Sometimes you need to begin with something that's overwhelming and awesome. To the point that at every one of the Ten Commandments it says, this wasn't mentioned, that their souls expired. Every word, every statement they heard from the Ten Commandments, their souls expired out of the great ecstasy, of the great spiritual revelation. And then God returned it into their bodies. Because you need both. You need to experience a high state of revelation, a high state of giluim, that in a way elevate you and even cause you to leave your very being, your very material parameters. But then, Ratzay, that's called Ratzay, the yearning, the seeking, but then it has to come back down and being resolved. The tension and the resolution. And both were there, Matan Torah, you needed the tension and you needed the resolution in order to bring a higher state of divine consciousness into a world that wasn't yet ready. And that's how you reconcile and explain this idea. Just to give another example, you find the two altars in the temple. There was the, it was called the Mizbeach HaPrimi, Mizbeach is the altar where they brought incense, and that was quiet. When you, when you offer incense, it doesn't make much noise. There was the outer altar, Mizbeach HaChitzen, Mizbeach HaKarbonis, where they brought offerings, animal offerings, and that, when you bring an animal offering, there's a lot of sizzling going on, other stuff going on, because you're transforming the matter, the animalistic nature of existence into something divine, and there 
there's far more noise, so to speak. But the goal is to have both, and we have both dimensions. One is when we're dealing with having to remove toxins and to refine the resistance of a crass, materialistic, hostile universe, there's going to be an element of a, some form of battle, some form of tension. And then there's the next stage. Once you do that, then you can refine it and elevate it. Once you've so-called protected from the elements, you can take the grain that you, that you harvest and turn it into bread. You can take the different uh, silk and, uh, and other materials and turn it into garments. And then it reaches the second peaceful and serene stage. Did we receive the entire Torah at Mount Sinai or just Aser Sadibris? So if you look at Rashi brings from Rapsad Yagon that the Ten Commandments included the entire Torah in it. So technically speaking, the entire Torah is included in the Ten Commandments. Whether they understood it as such, no, because then it had to be taught. And there are different explanations how there are two, two different opinions whether the Torah was taught through over the, over the years as they traveled in the wilderness or it was all given immediately and then expounded upon. Moshe Rabbeinu, remember, was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He was studying Torah, not just the Ten Commandments. The Torah also with its oral interpretation. Torah as the Rambam writes in his introduction to Mishnah Torah, So the Torah means not just the written, not just the written, but also the oral interpretation. And all that was given at Sinai, like it says, kol masha talmud vosik Everything that a, a dedicated student is going to innovate was given up to Moshe at Sinai, it says. So, but the fact of the matter is, not everything was as hurt in a revealed way. So it says the klolim, the general principles were there. The Ten Commandments include everything, and then they're unpacked, so to speak. Is there a connection between Yisrael advising Moshe, Yisrael advising Moses to hire assistants to delegate and help him, and the Rebbe sending out thousands of shulchim to help him spread the message of Torah and Yeah, that's a good comparison. I think it's been made before. The Rebbe himself probably made it. The, I don't recall offhand. But the idea, of course, the idea of delegation, the idea that not just you do it alone, but you give the schuz, the merit to others as well, which also allows B'derech HaTevin, a natural mean to be able to reach more people, is a powerful, a powerful lesson from Yisrael. The delegation, the decentralization in a way. So though Moshe remains Moshe, of course, but he appointed Asari Yalofim, Asari Meis, and the different uh, delegated leaders and teachers and sages to deal with the questions so they could handle, that, that all people's questions could be addressed and not everybody's waiting online just for Moshe Rabbeinu. The Rebbe, especially in the later years, spoke about the idea of Asel Kharav appointing a teacher, appointing a mentor, and delegating and saying clearly, if it comes to medical matters, go to a doctor. If it comes to um, other issues, go to a yidid, a friend, an expert. And, and issues that other issues go to the rabbonim, the chassidish rabbis in each community. So that, that's the concept. And they are given the power by Moshe Rabbeinu, the delegation. It's not, it's not ab- abnegating his responsibility, God forbid. It's delegating, just like it says by Vayatzal Moshe, when God emanated or imparted from the spirit of Moshe to the Skenim, the whole idea of Atzillus was that from Moshe's spirit was passed on to the Skenim. So delegation is a part. The shliach of an individual is like the individual, like the emissary 
is, is uh, channeled through, the, through his ambassadors, through his uh, shluchim, through his messengers. So there is definitely similarities in that sense. But you have to always maintain the integrity of the mashalech, meaning as independent as individuals are, they're always connected, rooted, to use the analogy of the tree, rooted in the principles and the fundamental methodologies that the Rebbe, the Moshe Rabbein of each generation teaches. It's a good follow-up to go right into some follow-up on Yud Shvat. So this past week was Yud Shvat, the 72nd anniversary of 1950, Tavshin Yud, when the Rebbe assumed leadership after the passing of the Stalkus and Lula of the Friedrich Rebbe. So we covered last week a whole bunch of different, uh, different areas of this. There's been some follow-up, and I thought appropriate, let's, uh, let's cover some of that. Someone asked the question, During the Yud Shvat 5711 Fabrengen, and that is the first Fabrengen that the Rebbe formally assumed leadership, did someone interrupt the Rebbe while he was Fabrengen and say, you speak very well, but we want a mimer, a Hasidic discourse. Do we know who this person who shouted out was? And what is a mimer and how is it different from a Sikha? Yes, it was a Rabbi Nemtsov who was there at the Fabrengen, and of course, it was a highly anticipated Fabrengen. It was the first anniversary, the first yard site. And there was already much talk what would be. Maybe there were some insiders that knew something was happening. And in the middle of the Fabrengen, I don't think he interrupted the Rebbe in the middle of speaking, but it could have been in the middle of a song. And he said, we hear the Sikhs. It was a little more respectful, I believe, than the quoted here. And the Rebbe says, it's excellent, the Sikhs. The Chassid said, excellent, the Sikhs. But we want to hear a maimer chassidus. Because a maimer is the formal statement, the formal presentation of a Rebbe. Even though a Rebbe's sikhs are also a Rebbe's talks, obviously, but a maimer always signified that the Rebbe is a Rebbe. A maimer chassidus. He would tie his handkerchief, a formal maimer, which was always the case until later the Rebbe devised of another, a more informal maimer, maimer kein sikhah. But the idea of a maimer they sang a nigan, the Naimer was delivered with a particular sing-song, and it was considered, this is Shekhinah Medaberes Metegrene, that this is like Messinai, the Rabbi Hill Parish's words, that when a Rebbe speaks, it's like Teire Messinai. So though the Sikhs, of course, are as well, and I'll explain that in a moment. So this Rabbi Nemtsov got up, and, he, and what happened? A short while later, I don't know how much time elapsed, and the Rebbe began and said, and we have it in recording, as the Rebbe, as I mimer, Bosligani, Hapton, and this is the last mimer that was published, Yuchfat, a year earlier. <clears throat> and the Rebbe started, Bosligani, Achesi, Kalo, and it was like a hush, you can hear the hush on the recording. The Rebbe accepting the Nasius, starting with a mimer, Bosligani. It was very unique. Most of it is on recording, you can hear it. And the Rebbe paused in the, through the Maimer to sing all the Nagunim of the Rabbeim, clearly invoking the power and the authority and the, and the very the strength of the Rabbeim, each of the Rabbeim. And here we have Bosil So that was the event that happened at Yuchvat, Tovshin Yudal, 71 years ago, this past week. As far as the difference in a Maimer and a Sikh, the Rebbe himself writes in a letter in several places. A sikhah, the Rebbe writes, is a less formal presentation. Well, the, you could say like speaking a little off the record, but not off the record in any, 
any negative implications. More bluntly, a mimer has its format. Usually begins with a, a verse or an idea, most likely based on previous mimorim in almost all cases, except a few exceptions. And it goes with a particular structure, questions and then explanation, and then ending with the conclusion of answering the questions. And as I said, based on this courses before, so you have the body of Maimorim from the Alta Rebbe all the way to the Rebbe, which has its own type of personality and presentation. And it's a more formal, the formal delivery of Chassidus. Now, in many Sikhs, there's profound ideas in Chassidus. Actually, explanations in the Maimorim. And the Rebbe very often would explain something he said in a discourse. Why didn't he say it in the discourse? Because the discourse still maintains a certain, you can say it's almost like the written Torah. Why is not everything written? Some things are oral interpretation, either because it needs more elaboration or because you have the written main points and then we elaborate and try to understand it. You see it in Torah Sholem from the Rebbe Rashab, for example. Fascinating ideas that are discussed in discourses, but in Torah Sholem will speak a lot less formally and with words that usually won't see in a mimer, in a discourse. So they're both obviously coming from the Rebbe and have full authority, but it's a different approach, one considered to be far more formal and authoritative, the other also authoritative but less formal, and sometimes also addressing things that are not necessarily purely exodus. Like the Rebbe in his talks would deliver, he would speak a seem in the Rambam, he spoke different halachas in Rambam, he explained Rashi, Zehar, Perkeyovis, Siyumim, concluding different uh, the tractates in the Talmud, and of course, current events and scientific events, all that would not really belong in the rubric and the framework of a mimer. And yet it's clearly lessons from Torah and Chassidus about all these different uh, aspects of Torah or worldly matters. Okay. In the days leading up to Yud Shvat 5711, a newspaper wrote an article saying that the Rebbe was chosen to succeed the Friedrich Rebbe. The problem was that this article was premature and at the time the Rebbe didn't officially accept the leadership yet. When he saw the article, we were told that he was upset and called in Rabbi Kharikov to discuss asking the newspaper to print a retraction. After the discussion, they decided not to ask the newspaper to retract the article. Is it possible that the reason was the Rebbe didn't want to even risk accidentally embarrassing anyone at the newspaper, even so much that he may have agreed to accept the leadership because before he was actually ready to? We are taught that Hashem does the same mitzvahs He commands us. There is a commandment not to embarrass someone in public. Can we try a strategy where we have a newspaper print that Mashiach has arrived and perhaps Hashem will then send Mashiach instead of risking embarrassing the author of the newspaper article? Well, interesting concept. No, we can't do that because it can't just create a falsity. Remember here the Rebbe was going to assume leadership and it was not the newspaper that made it happen or... Now, as far as the details with the announcement, there's a lot of different versions of it. Generally, I heard it somewhat of a different story, which may be in addition to this, that there was an ad placed by Chassidim in the newspaper saying that this coming Yud Shvat, we're going to accept the Rebbe's assuming leadership. And there were some complaints from people who did not like that announcement. And the Rebbe was approached about it. And uh, Rabbi Shmuel Levitin, one of the prim- prim- prominent Chassidim at the time, said to this fellow, and said to the Rebbe, and so the Rebbe said, yeah, why did you put such an ad? And he says, we, we, it's not your ad, it's our ad. We're announcing that we're accepting your leadership. So that's how that was resolved. As far as this 
It's very possible to print a, a, a retraction. Look, the Rebbe initially was reluctant for many different reasons. We don't always know all the deeper reasons. The Rebbe was reluctant to accept the leadership. But he finally did accept it, and it was not because it was printed in the paper. The paper was, someone wrote the story, how, how that exactly happened, I don't know the circumstances. And ultimately, I would say it was not retracted, not to embarrass, that was not the reason. It was simply because it was true. But it was, yes, the, the Rebbe did not like that someone went to formally announce it, maybe. Maybe they did that without the Rebbe's permission. But not because of an embarrassment issue. As far as Mashiach goes, we can't say something that's not correct. Chassidim accepted the Rebbe as Rebbe immediately. Literally the day of the Friedrich Rebbe's passing, there were Chassidim that accepted the Rebbe. Not everyone knew about it. Not everyone was involved yet. So it wasn't a matter of some type of shocking surprise. So it was clear. And the Rebbe was receiving people. They were asking the Rebbe. They gave the Rebbe pans. Yes, officially, it was not there yet. In the sense that Rebbe formally assumed it. Assumed the leadership. But he was going to the oil and he was behaving in many ways already beginning to, like a Rebbe. And Chassidim that were there that treated the Rebbe in that fashion. Comes to Mashiach, only Hashem can announce that. We can't make that announcement. It's not like the story where the, the child, the daughter of the Fidika Rebbe, um, the, story, the story with Rishol Rizhoner, that uh, actually, um, we wanted to have an apple, so he made the bracha, so they had to give an apple to eat the apple. It's a different case. The apple was right there. So I don't believe we can do that about Mashiach. In the discourse of Basil Ligani, it talks about the Shekhinah. That the primary Shekhinah was down below in this world before the eating of the tree of knowledge. Basil Ligani, Lignuni, the bridal chamber. Is it, what is the Shekhinah? Is, is it God's essence or just a revelation of a part of the divine? In the Basilagani discourse, it says there were generations that the Shekhinah retreated to different firmaments. From the Medrash and Shira Shirim Rabbah, each generation of sin, transgression, caused the Shekhinah to, yes, to retreat or to recede or to be concealed. We are also taught that when ten people daven and pray together in a minion, the Shekhinah rests among them. It says, yeah, but it actually says not even a minion. Al Tareba points out that even if they don't daven and learn, just the mere fact they come together brings the Shechina, but definitely more so when they pray and they study and they learn and they daven. So during the era when the Shechina was hanging out in the fifth firmament, would it be able to we, we would it be able to visit our physical world when there was a minion? Okay. Well. Actually, the first discourse of the Rebbe that we're talking about, 5711, 5711, Tavshin Yudalef, he actually talks about the Shekhinah and brings the different interpretations all the way to the highest levels. Generally speaking, the Shekhinah means Shechenes the divine that manifests and gets enclosed into existence, the divine that relates to existence. Sometimes referred to Malchus, which is more the divine emanations of the divine emotions, attri- divine attributes, emotional attributes, and Malchus that descends into Biyah, into Biyah, But as the Rebbe brings in that discourse, Shekhinah is explained in different Maimorim, higher and higher, all the way to Malchus of Einsah before the Tzimtzum. So it's clearly Shekhinah is not Atzmus, meaning the core essence, it's already the divine as it manifests, and that's the general statement about it. And that is why, yes, it is revelation. And the, the point was, Atzmus 
is always here and cannot be, God forbid, removed. There's no such thing as symptom there. So the idea that transgression would cause an effect on the etzim, the divine essence, no. On the Shekhinah, that manifests on the beginning of creation, it was here in a revealed way, is the sins that concealed it, first from, the, from earth to the seventh heaven, to the sixth heaven, to the fifth heaven, until Abraham began to reverse the process and brought it from the seventh heaven to the sixth, and then Yitzchak and Yaakov, all the way, Moshe Rabbeinu, for Oshel Migdash, and what's the word? Vishachanti. Again, Shechina, Shechanti B'Seichem, I will dwell amongst you in the temple, in the sanctuary. When we come together, ten people, in a way we are able to manifest the Shechina, because ten people have a certain synergy, especially when they daven and they learn. So even when the Shechina is concealed, yes, our efforts and our work reveal the Shechina at least temporarily, and our goal, of course, is through our service and through our work is to bring it permanently into this world, transform this world into the garden that it was, and even more than the in a permanent way and the highest levels of the divine. In Chassidus, how do we say statements like without or the world would be dark and separate from its creator? I believe the person is asking because there's this idea is, is uh, addressed in some of the discourses of Basilegani. Doesn't all of life come from air, from divine energy? Is air the source of life as we know it? How can you have a world separate from air? Well, air has a few meanings. First of all, yes, it's revelation. It's energy. So, so the fact is that air is not just the divine essence. It's the divine manifestation, divine awareness, divine consciousness. So one of the key purposes of Ayur is to reveal the divine. That's why it says, without Ayur, the world would be dark and separate from its creator. Not separate fundamentally, but not aware, not conscious. And that's why God created Ayur, to reveal Elokos, to reveal the divine and godliness in our existence. So everything comes from that energy, but it gets concealed. The energy gets and goes through the tzimtzumim, the different concealments. It enters into containers to the point in this world we need to make we need work and effort to reveal the erein sov that exists, but it's there. So nothing is separate from the air; it's just concealed at times. And remember, just as air reveals, it's also subject to concealment. And our work is to reverse the process, as we've been discussing, and to reveal that concealed divine in this existence of ours. Mashiach comes, it'll be Gili Eden Sov, as the Alter Rebbe writes, the beginning of chapter 37, that the infinite divine revealed in this world in a permanent and, and completely integrated fashion. What happened at Sinai will be complete, the complete integration of matter and spirit, matter and energy. Okay. So that's follow ups with Yuchvat. Let's now go to some follow up, not follow up, rather, some of the current events. So let's start with the hostage crisis in Texas that, thank God, was resolved, where the, host- the hostage taker was killed, and the few people he took hostage came out unscathed. So if you're not familiar with the news, this happened yesterday in a synagogue in the area, in Texas area near Fort Worth, and uh, I think it's called Colleyville. And um, so, so someone asked the question, what lessons... What can we learn from yesterday's hostage crisis in Texas? 
Another person writes, does God cause trouble and problems such as the terrible hostage situation at the, sh- at the synagogue in Texas in order to get everyone to daven and say extra psalms to Hillam? Can we avert potential future tragic situations by saying extra to Hillam in advance? So, so first of all, let's talk about God. Even though everything is divine providence, yet at the same time, we don't try to try to understand that God is doing certain things for a particular reason. What I mean by that is, in the words of the Rambam, when a catastrophe happens, any sad negative thing happens, we have to see it not as an accident. So it's definitely something that's, that is divine providence. But we have to learn from it what we should do in introspection. But I don't like to say in the words that God did this in order for this to happen. Because we don't know God's calculations. So on the other hand, should we learn lessons? Absolutely. Anything that happens is a lesson to us to look at our lives. Now, the fact that one of the things we should look at is our prayers, our tehillim. And there's no question that prayer works and helps. And, um, and the more we pray, we can avert and we can preempt all kinds of situations. That's the power of prayer. I just don't want to make that direct connection because, again, if God says, I'm doing something for a reason, he tells us what the reason is, okay, okay. Beyond that, the reason that we have to learn is learn the lessons that we need to learn. So what other lessons can we learn from this? So the obvious is clear. We still live in a world where there's a darkness going on. The Jews, unfortunately, can be victims of hostage-taking or worse. If you remember the story in the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, in Poway and other places where there was actual killings. So we live in a world that still needs tikkun and repair. In that sense, we have to be wary, we have to be vigilant would be the right word, and prudent in protecting ourselves and protecting our holy places and protecting our men, women, and children. But that's basic. That's, everyone understands that. And try to eradicate once and for all any form of anti-Semitism. In this case, it seems like coming from the Muslim world, with whatever its intentions were, still being investigated. So that's one thing. On a deeper level, what this teaches us is our responsibility, our responsibility as Jews to spread everywhere possible God's plan for this world. The Sheva Mitzvah B'Neach, the seven Noahide laws, which are really based on the Ten Commandments and given at Sinai, as the Rambam says, that any event of this nature just reminds us that there are people that still need to be educated and taught. I'm saying this in addition to doing everything to defend ourselves. I'm not saying it just to put down our arms and just spread holy words of God and goodness. In addition to everything we do to protect ourselves, and especially the IDF, the Tzahal in Israel, who sacrificed their lives for such a cause, such a noble cause, protecting others, protecting their brothers and sisters, in addition we should also do whatever we can to teach everyone we meet that God is watching. There's an eye in ray, there's an eye that sees, there's an ear that hears, we're accountable, we're not living in a jungle. And especially people who consider themselves devout and religious, let them learn from our grandfather Abraham. What do you do even if you disagree with someone? He prayed for infidels. So this is what reminds, should remind us, and that's what comes to mind immediately when you see events like this, in the bigger picture. 
So it goes both aspects to it. We prepare for war as, as Jacob did, and we do whatever we can to protect ourselves and defend ourselves. But at the same time, we're also here to bring light to the world. We're not here just to play defense, but offense, and to bring a higher standard and expect it and demand it of every person on this earth. So those are the few things that come to mind. May we not know of any more such events. And let us go on now to the next question. Okay, so someone writes, What attitude should we be having to the recent auction of personal items of the Rabbeim? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, lately there's been a controversy where someone or a group of people are auctioning personal items and belongings of our Rabbeim and their families online. For example, some holy items such as a Kiddush Kop, purportedly owned by the Rabbi Rashab, a Siddur purportedly used by the Mittler Rebbe, and also some more mundane items such as a wheelchair used by the Friedrich Rebbe, kitchen utensils purportedly belonging, purportedly belonging to the Rebbe Marash's family, and personal clothing belonging to different Rabbeim and Rebbetsons. Some say many of these items may be counterfeit. But on the assumption that a particular item is authentic and not stolen, I will allow to buy it. Personally, and I mean no disrespect, but I think it would be creepy to buy the Tzemach Tzedek socks or the Rebetzin Shetl or other personal clothing of our Rabbeim. But the holy items, I would, but the holy items, I would feel different. In all honesty, who wouldn't want to have and be able to use a holy object that was used for, by, for a mitzvah by a tzaddik? For example, I would love to have and use a book of Tehillim that was owned and used by the Alter Rebbe. But are we allowed to own such an object? On the one hand, chassanim are allowed to use the Rebbe's siddur, that's grooms, are allowed to use the Rebbe's prayer book before their wedding. And some people in the community own shirts that were worn by the Rebbe and bring them to weddings for the, for the groom to wear under the chuppah. But on the other hand, during the time when the holy books were stolen from the library and sold, the Rebbe made public statements saying not only would people not benefit from owning these books, but it is dangerous to keep them in their homes as they are like bombs that can explode at any time. I'm not sure, so maybe you can elaborate if you remember, but did the Rebbe also say at the time that all personal objects that belonged to our Rebbeim were dangerous to keep in your home and can cause harm? Can we make any differentiation Different, differentiation, differentiation, differentiation between items that were stolen or legitimately bequeathed. Obviously, buying a book that was stolen is wrong, and there's no question about that. But what if the Rebbe Hanukkah legitimately inherited her grandfather's tefillin and then gave it to someone as a gift, and that person, for whatever reason, decided to sell it? Do you think it's wrong to buy it, and do you think, based on the Rebbe's talks, that, would, that he would approve or disapprove? Thank you for your response, and keep up the good work on your amazing... Sunday night class. Okay, thank you for that. So, my answer is pretty unequivocal and clear-cut based on my understanding of those talks that you just cited. So first of all, the issue of counterfeit and uh, forgery and so on. Generally speaking, these things need to be verified very objectively. I know there's signatures going around that, uh, that sign, the verification, but those people are not alive. Can the signature have been forged, perhaps? I didn't make any investigations. I'm not going to just assume anything. But I would say be very, very wary. Because remember, whenever money is being made, there's always a possibility of ulterior motives, to put it mildly. People, someone's making money. If someone said, here I have items, and anyone first come, first serve, and not charging for it, even there, you have to really prove it. Maybe they want to make a name for themselves. But there's just too many um, suspicious elements here. 
that must be extremely verified. In, in any world, whether it's art or any auction, you need 100% verification, and I don't think that exists. I know pictures have been taken, but forgeries can be made. It's known, counterfeits, and so on. So that's first of all. Second of all, even if something can be proven authentic, I totally agree with the latter approach. Who has a right to sell that? Who was given this to sell? Even if Hannah Garari herself has sold it, you could say she had the right to sell it. Fine, I'm not going to go challenge her. But is this something that should be sold? It belongs as part of the legacy. It belongs in the library of Agudis Chzidi Chabad, which is no personal library. It's not the Rebbe's library as an individual, as an heir, as a son-in-law, or the Rebbe's Chaimushka as a daughter. As the whole case made clear, this belongs to Chzidim, because the Rebbe himself belongs to Chzidim. So any such object should be returned, should be sent to the library. The Rebbe was very against buying things to send to the library because it would create a market and a demand. So all of this just definitely goes against the grain and the spirit of everything the Rebbe said. So I would definitely tell, tell anyone to refrain from purchasing any of these items, even if they're proven to be authentic. But to encourage whoever seems to have control over it, to return it to the Rebbe's library. And I say Rebbe, Gudis Chide Chabad library, I should say. And, and that's that. That's where it belongs. And this is all matters, whether it's personal belongings. The Rebbe has a famous Sikh of Ayikra Tov Shemem Zayin, where he cites from the Friedrich Rebbe's Maimer, Reish Goyim Amolek Tov Reish Pei, that everything, the furniture, the very belongings, they're all Kedusha. And definitely the holy objects. Yes, it would be very nice to have. And I know people who do have items. The Rebbe gave something to someone. The Rebbe gave something to someone. That was a gift. It's their right to do that. Friedrich Rebbe gave someone uh, an item or any of the Rabbeim. There are, there are situations like that. The Rabbeim did give things to people. But that's there. They gave it. It didn't come through any dubious or backdoor approaches and so on, and for any ulterior motives. Now, if that person who was given a gift by a Rebbe goes ahead and sells it, I think that would also not be appropriate. If the Rebbe didn't give it to him to sell, he gave it to him to have as a schus, as a merit, as a repayment for something maybe he did for the Rebbe. And that's the approach I would take, and I'm not here to personally attack anyone. We're talking about the concept and the idea. But when money is being made, you always have to be wary. Because there's always that ulterior motive. And that's simply the fact. Okay. Another question. I don't want to... It, it sounds like a weird question to follow the previous one. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, in the news a few weeks ago, a man with incurable heart disease received a transplant with a, big, a pig's heart into his body. Is this allowed according to Allah? Is it a problem because it's not a kosher animal? Yes, so there were previously transplant valves of a pig's heart that were used in, in human beings. But this was the first time that entire pig's heart. The, the answer is, and though I'm not a paisik and I'm not ruling, but when you look at all the rulings, pikuach nefesh, saving a life, trumps everything. And therefore, if you can save a life, and it's the only way to do so was with a pig's heart, because the different reasons this person could not get a human heart, and, other, and the different factors involved, then, there's, uh, then it's allowed. It's true that the Talmud talks about, the Mishnah talks, and Allah talks about breeding pigs and using them and so on. 
and definitely benefiting from them. But we're talking again life and death. The question would be, can you breed pigs in order just for this purpose? That's a question that should be asked to rabbis. But the answer briefly is yes, because of pekoach nefesh. Okay. Another, tech, another current event, should we be applauding the new space telescope? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, you see the diversity of the questions, and I am very happy to read them all. They go from one end of the spectrum to the other. But they all come down to that Torah Chassidus has something to say on all matters. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, it's a very exciting day for people who like astronomy as they recently launched the James Webb Space Telescope to replace the older Hubble Telescope. In comparison, Hubble was, 30 year old, was a 30-year-old technology, had an 8-foot diameter meter, orbited 300 miles above Earth, and could see objects almost 13 billion light-years away. The James Webb has a 21-foot diameter mirror with infrared sensors, will orbit at the Lagrange, Lagrange, or Lagrange point 1 million miles away and has modern computers to guide it. I'm very excited to see new photos of outer space, but as a religious Jew, I have a few questions. The purpose of the new telescope is to peer further than Hubble and try to see and understand what happened the first 300 million years after the Big Bang. This is controversial to Torah observers who believe God created the world 5,782 years ago. While physical evidence shows the universe has existed for close to 13.7 billion years, scientists, yeah, well, right. scientists know that because they can measure the speed of light and see objects so far away that it took billions of years for the, its light to reach us. Is it possible we can reconcile the Torah's view that God created the world with a view of science, that there was a singularity with all the mass of the universe that exploded with a big bang, by saying that God created the universe via a big bang? Has the Rebbe ever made comments about space exploration and telescopes? Is it an infringement into God's privacy for us to build big telescopes to see what's out there? Does the Torah prefer we just focus on matters on planet Earth and not try to see too much that is not relevant to God's plan for us to live our lives doing mitzvahs and studying Torah? Okay, great questions. And let's just separate a few things here. First of all, the use of technology and science and to peer into the farthest recesses of the universes is absolutely permitted and not only permitted, even encouraged. Raise your eyes to heaven, it says, and you created all this. So the more we can raise our eyes, whether it's through space travel, whether it's through telescopes, the more we see the vastness, the awesomeness of the divine creation. Last week we spoke in Basilegani that you could see bleak vul, infinity in existence. Where do you see it? In the expanding universe. And the more you see, the more in awe we are of the divine bleak vul, of the divine infinite. So that's not even a question. The issue about science, how science measures the age of the universe with Torah, is a to- topic of its own, which I will address momentarily. But I just wanted to make this distinction. To, to say that we're invading in God's privacy, as long as God created technology and the means for human beings to create technologies, to see, that means that God wants it. Now we have to use it, L'Shem Shemayim, for divine purposes, not just for curiosity, to appreciate the divine, to implement what God wants of us 
to bring that bleak wool into this existence, to bring the infinite into the finite existence of ours, to stand in awe and reverence, Yiddish Hashem, Avis Hashem, reverence of God, love of God. Like the Rambam says, How does a person come to love and revere God? By contemplating on nature, on existence, on the world, on God's greatness. How great are God's creations. How multiple they are, multitudes. So that is regarding the actual question about the telescope. And yes, we should applaud it in the same way as all technology when used for the right purposes. As far as the age of the universe goes, long before the telescopes, scientists say that, because scientists don't go with the premise that there's a Torah and there's a God that through the Torah told us how long, how, when he created existence. Now, if you want the question, if you were with Adam and Eve right now in the Garden of Eden, sixth day of creation, the sixth day, you would see stars, you would see trees, You'd see stars that are light years away. If you had a telescope, you would see all these the, the hundreds of millions of light years away. So the world would seem to be hundreds of millions of years old or billions of years old. But that's the way God created the universe. He didn't create little saplings. He created big trees. So just looking at a tree, it took at least a year, if not 100 years or 50 years for that tree to grow. We know from tree rings. Stars, the fact that you see the light, it meant it traveled. So the world was created a mature universe. The chicken and the egg, the big question which came first, both together. God created chickens and created eggs. Seeds and trees. So this question is not one today because we have a telescope. It's a question of a different premise. Now, in a way, you can't criticize a scientist because if they don't know better, they're using observation. When you observe something, you see something, they see a star. It took light years to get here. And that's what they would have said in the Garden of Eden. Except, the main exception, when they hear that God created the world. And God says, this is when I created it, 5,782 years ago. The Torah is not proving the world is 5,782. It's based on what we were told. The, 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 if there are proofs otherwise, it'll say, because God created a mature universe. So this isn't two different uh, axioms, two different idioms and how we look at this whole concept. And the reconciliation is basically not trying to reconcile. Scientists are going with what they are, their observations. The Torah is coming and telling us something that you could only have heard from God himself. We weren't there. We don't know when the world was created. We were told when it was created. Now, as far as the Big Bang goes, yes, there's no problem saying there was a Big Bang right by Bereshit's Bar Kim. And it's a natural process that God put into place. He created everything in one moment, says Bereshit's Bar, and then from there, everything emerged. Very similar to the concept of the Big Bang. And obviously much more to be said on this topic, but I think that covers that question. But thank you for the question. Very interesting topic. So now I'm going to go now, use the last minutes of this program, to do more follow-up on the controversy that broke a few weeks ago regarding sex, sexual abuse, and so on, because it's a topic that unfortunately continues to haunt and affect us. So I'm not going to talk right now about that scandal. Hopefully that's, that's the past. We're talking about current issues and challenges, pain that children are suffering, 
and what we can do to preempt and eradicate once and for all this cancer. And what do we do once it's there? How do we intervene and help children, adults, men, women to live healthy lives despite the pain they may have gone through? Because everything is healable. Magdim Rafur Lamakot says, God precedes the cure before the illness. And the same thing is when human beings hurt each other. We are never victims. And we're never defined and never identify that which was done to us. Things have happened. We may have suffered. We may have been hurt. We may have been abused, violated. But you're not a product of violation. You're not a sufferer. One of the big and most important things in healing is to separate what happened and you. I'm not saying it's easy. Because that which happens sometimes is embedded so deeply in us, in our psyches, in our minds, in our subconscious. It's very hard to extract but that's the most important thing to remember. Your soul is pure. You say it every morning. There's no one that should not say that prayer. It doesn't matter what happened. You're never a defiled soul. You're not damaged goods. You're not hurt. You are a divine gift. An indispensable divine force in this existence. And then yes, Atabarasa. You, God, have sent that soul from this pure state into a world of creation. It's been shaped. You've imbued it within me. And you're protected within me. So God is protecting every one of us when we need protection. In Taheri, which is the world of Atsilas, you can say you don't need protection because everything is pure and godly there. But in this world, we do need protection. We need protection from our parents, from our educators, from the entire society to nurture, to nourish, to cultivate, to love unconditionally, to validate, to help every child be that tahirihi, that pure entity in this world. And that's what our objective is now. How to achieve that from birth and even prior to birth to create such an environment, such a pure environment, and how to heal when something happens that does violate and the Meshamer Bikibi wasn't there completely. How to reaccess and revisit, reconnect to God's protection and the protection of those around us. So I can't tell you questions. I mean, I don't think I can cover them all. Definitely not in this program. But I'll just cover a few more. Some of a heart-wrenching some are very, very uh, personal and private. So I'll try to read them in a way that protects confidentiality. Um, I've been dealing with it off this program literally on a daily basis. Calls that are coming in, children, adults, people who've been hurt, different stages of their lives. And I, for one, and I believe every one of us should feel the need responsibility to respond and do whatever we can to help someone. You can't help them yourself through showing, well, everybody can help through showing love and unconditional acceptance. But even more than that, to direct them and guide them to professionals to be able to begin, begin or facilitate the healing process. And everything can be healed. You can become stronger in the broken places. Yes. So I listened to the YouTube program regarding the abuse suicide case. For the first time in 67 years, I heard a voice that had some small insight 
into what happens when we are physically, mentally, emotionally, and sexually abused over years. Until now, only my four siblings could relate to that horrific thing called our childhood. No other human could ever believe it or even begin to comprehend the effects then and throughout the course of our lives. Then I heard your call, then I heard you call it soul murder. For the first time I had words to describe what happened and that one non-family member had some understanding. I have absolutely no idea why this brings me such comfort. I don't know why these words seem to banish my hidden shame. Thank you, Baruch Hashem. Well, it speaks for itself. I really have no comment to say. I wish it would be comforting to everyone who's heard these words. And yes, acknowledging soul murder, maybe just the fact that it's stated, the extent of what it does, and repeated soul murder, is itself somewhat healing. And I hope that this becomes the first step for you and many others toward growth. And despite 67 years, continue to fulfill and live up. Remember, God chose you. Birth is God saying you matter. Absolutely valuable, no matter what happened. And that's what you have to hold on for your dear life. Last week, another person writes, I posted a picture of some of this author's books. uh, How I was throwing them in the garbage on my WhatsApp status to encourage others to do the same. I received some backlash. One person told me I shouldn't act this way without consulting a mashpia first because it's hurtful to his poor family. What is your opinion? Is that an accepted thing to do or am I being insensitive to others? Anyone that feels violated or feels hurt one way or another can do whatever you wish with any book you like as long as it's not a holy book. These books are not holy books. It's a man writing. Maybe it had benefit at the time, but it's, I don't see any issue with someone throwing them out or burning them or whatever it is. To do it publicly, it questions what's the benefit of doing that. To make a statement, again, I'm not going to forbid someone from doing it, but as I discussed about public shaming, there's a purpose in it. Now the purpose can be to demonstrate to your children or to others that we are not going to tolerate a person writing, especially about protecting children and hurting children. So in that sense, there is uh, merit to it. As far as his poor family, I don't think uh, throwing out his books is the key here. His poor family is suffering greatly. He committed suicide, never had resolution. Many time, in many ways, they're victims themselves. And they need to be helped by friends and whoever that can help them get through their thing. But that's not what I'd be concerned with. So I'm not going to make a statement here, absolutely go burn the books and publicize them everywhere, the, the pictures, or throw them in the garbage. Or the other extreme, that no, you can't do that, and so on. I think it's important to make these statements because people know about the story, they know about the author, they know about the books, and it's important to make sure that it's clear that we're not uh, whitewashing it, and we're not, you know, again, this is not a Torah book. This is an individual who wrote. An individual, unfortunately, was to, turned out to be a monster and has hurt many, many people. And again, I'm not rushing to judgment. That again, Bezdin Shalmaila, but we're talking about what we're assuming based on what we've heard, based on Rabbanim and so on. The judgment is up to God. But we, what people have a right to make their to declare and make their statements clearly heard, and that's where I, that's how I would respond to that. Can we put the pulsa denuda curse on rabbis who publicly support rapists and shame the victims? 
So Pulsa Danura is talking about the fires of uh, the, the fiery uh, spiritual fires that uh, go the, the Nahar Danur, that uh, purgatory basically. So there's an actual thing called a curse of Pulsa Danura. I don't believe in us being the ones that invoke curses. I think we have to do everything possible to protect children and adults. We have to call out anyone that does the opposite, that protects or in some way covers up on people who are perpetrators and, um, and who shame victims. Absolutely. And there are many ways to do it. We don't, I don't think we need to have a, a, a curse word. I think we need to have action and make it clear that it won't be tolerated. Now, obviously, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. But if someone is a rabbi and a leader, and for that matter, anyone, that just decides to cover up or minimize, they should be called out on it. Now be done in the proper way, with the right evidence, with the right clarity, and so on. Not just rumors. You don't want to hurt anyone either. And you have to make sure that the person who is protecting so-called a perpetrator, you have to speak to them first. You don't know what's going on. Maybe they didn't say exactly what you heard they said. So let's not rush to judgment on anyone, and definitely not through a lynch mob, Get clarity. If there's someone in your community you know that's done really a crime and the rabbi refuses to acknowledge it or on the contrary is honoring this person, so then either approach the rabbi privately or probably with a few people. Get clarity. Let the rabbi have the right to defend himself. Let him understand their implications and consequences. But it should all be done with a sober approach with the goal of productivity, not just out of rage. We are all angry. But you don't want anger to control the circumstances. You want it to be driven in a productive way that will lead ultimately to the healing and protection and preempting and, and, help, and helping everyone involved. Now, due to limited time, I'm going to leave more questions for the next program and hopefully get through them unless they keep coming at a, rip, at a pace that's faster than my ability to answer them. So we are going to stop here. Let me conclude on a happy note. A happy Chamisha Oseh It's a celebration of growth of the trees God planted in this world that teach us about growth, that teach us about development, of blossoming. May each of you, may each person on this earth live up to being the tree which you were created, to blossom, to spread your wings, to bear fruit, to bring shade, protection, warmth, love, photosynthesis to each one of us and everyone in the world. And yes, to live up to Neshamash and Nesatabi, to Hedehi. It's pure, it's pristine, like freshly fallen snow. Most important thing is to protect our pure children. You shall not touch Mashiach. Who are Mashiach? My Mashiach. My anointed ones. The Tanekh shall be The children. Do not touch them. That doesn't, the Gemara talks about not even disturbing them from studying Torah when you build a temple. But definitely not in any other way. Do not defile them. Do not hurt my children, my Mashiach. They are my Mashiach. Think about it. And what can we do to make sure that every child in this world is protected, 
is nurtured. Do not look the other way. You see something, act on it, but in a responsible fashion. And the more of us that join that revolution, which I spoke about, an intimacy revolution, of a revolution of creating a new approach, a new paradigm of how to look at intimacy, then we can say that our generation merited will be remembered not just for the crimes and the violations, but for the revolution we created, which will definitely usher in the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. Thank you very much. This has been Chassidus Applied, episode 388. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Be well and be blessed. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.